There are lots of surprises in life. That woman was about to enter probably the biggest surprise of her life. Sometimes surprises move us in a positive direction. Sometimes they move us in a negative direction. Sometimes we're just overwhelmed and we just don't know what to do. I had a surprise the other day in my life when I was watching the evening news. I always watch uh, the NBC version of the evening news. I like Lester Holt. And uh, sometimes I watch it right at 6.30 if I can. Otherwise, I use it with my DVR and I watch it later. But I'm watching the news and there's a report about washing machines. And I just got drawn into this report about washing machines. I never thought so much about washing machines in my life until I saw this report because they were recalling Samsung washing machines because they were exploding all across America. I mean, they were just like blowing up all across America. And, and there was something about that broadcast that grabbed me and shook me because I suddenly realized I have a Samsung washing machine. Could I be in danger? Could Bodie and Wilson be in danger of just walking by the washing machine and then it just explodes? Or what if I'm doing all of my, my socks? See, I take responsibility for all of my socks. I lost too many socks in my lifetime to not take responsibility. So I do my own socks. What if I'm putting my socks in the, in the washing machine and it just explodes and there's socks everywhere and I'm blown back against the wall, unconscious, can't call 911. This is like a serious problem. So I realized I might have the exploding washer. There's a serial number and you have to go online. And so I go online with trepidation, punch it all in. And yes, I have the exploding washing machine. So now what am I going to do? I have to get rid of it. But I kept it for three months just to have tension in my home. Just, you know, and Gail and I would look at each other. We go, is it going to explode today? Is it going to explode tomorrow? Are you doing laundry? Should, should I wear a helmet? Like what? is going on. So the other day we finally got rid of the exploding washing machine. Here it is. It's going down, down, going, 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 and gone. And uh, because I had my, my phone, I just wanted to take an artistic picture of the new washing machine. So here's my artistic picture of the new washing machine in the driveway. I'm thinking about sending this to the Museum of Modern Art, sort of like a modern interpretation of a Picasso washing machine moment. Uh, but there are surprises, all kinds of surprises. And you might want to go home. If you have a Samsung washing machine, you might want to go home and check it right now because I want to see you next week. I don't want to see you exploding all over the place. There they go. There goes another spring brancher right there. Today, we're going to look at a few surprises in John chapter 4. And one of the surprises is what I call invisible food. I have read John chapter 4 umpteen times upon umpteen times in my 46 years of being a Christian. And what I love about the Bible is you can read something umpteen times, times, umpteen times, and then you'll suddenly see something new. And I saw something new that grabbed me, and I knew I needed to share this with you today. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus 
tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So the sun is high in the sky. It's hot. Jesus is tired. He's kind of, he's thirsty. And a woman comes along. He saw this happen right there from a video we were able to get from Jerusalem News circa 0033 AD. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Um, Jerusalem and this place where they were in Samaria are separated by about 180 kilometers or 111 miles. And here's, here's what the deal was. Uh, the Samaritans said that Mount Gerizim, this mountain where they were living, was the place where Abraham reportedly was, was going to, to sacrifice his son Isaac before he was stopped doing that. Here's a picture from 1603, a painting, beautiful painting from 1603 by Caravaggio of that scene of what it might have looked like with Abraham and his son Isaac. And notice in 400 years ago, people were so fascinated with these stories that they were still painting wonderful, beautiful paintings about it. And so, but the, the Jews believed that it was at Mount Moriah, which is what we call today the, the Temple Mount. When you see the Wailing Wall, when you see people there praying, that's, that's the Temple Mount. And, uh, and they believe that that's the place where Abraham had gone to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so they've got this great difference of opinion. Uh, and because of that, they don't associate with each other. It reminds me of that old joke about the guy who was on the the, the island, he was on, on a South Pacific atoll, and he was there for 30, 40 years, and, and he was just all by himself. He had nothing to do, so he built his own town. And so he had a bank, and he had a grocery store, and he had a church, and he had, you know, a whole bunch of different kinds of buildings, and, and it took him 30, 40 years. He had this beautiful town that he built. And so finally he's rescued 30, 40 years later. And when the people find him, they see all these buildings and they say, what's, what's with all the buildings here? It looks like a town. He said, well, I had nothing to do. So I built my own town. He said, would you like a tour? And they said, sure, we would love a tour. So he took them around and said, here's the bank. Here's the store. Here's, here's my church. And, and he walked them all around. And then just over a small hill, they saw this tall steeple with a cross on top. And they said, well, you said this was your church, but we see a steeple over there. He said, oh, yeah, that's a church I used to go to little inside church humor. So people kind of go, oh, you know, we think it's over here and you think it's over there and we're not going to talk to you anymore. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, even in, in those days when they didn't have all the different varieties of, of water that we have today. She knew that there was no such thing as living water and she really wasn't sure what this gentleman was talking about. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. And, and the literal writing of the New Testament says, you don't have a bucket. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this doesn't make any sense at all to this woman. The woman said to him, just trying to get rid of him. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she goes, okay, you want to play this game? I'll play the game. Give me the water, and then I'll have to come back here anymore. Because in her mind, she's going, he can't produce this water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. She's just trying to get her day back on track. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have, you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now she wants to change the subject. She doesn't want to talk about her personal life. She doesn't want to talk about her relational life. She just wants to move on. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, 111 miles apart. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What's Jesus say? It's not about mountains. It's not about locations. And here's, here's where you have to just stop for a minute. Sit down and, and ponder this and let this kind of wash over you. This woman is talking to God himself. And she's basically asking the question, what's the right religion? What's the right way to believe? What are the right words to say? Where's the right place to go? How, how does all this, how does this work? I want to be in the right place. I want to do the right things. I want to say the right words. She's talking to God. What's God say to her? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Sit down for a second and think about this. This is God, and God's being asked the question, what's the right place to go? And God says, you don't have to go anywhere. It's not about going somewhere. It's not about being in the right geographical spot. It's not about saying the right words, really. It all comes down to this. It all comes down to a heart-level response, worship, He's seeking, God's seeking people who worship him, who's, people who are giving their lives to him, people who are giving everything to him. They know that this is the, the one thing to really give your life to, the one thing to really build your life on, this relationship where your heart and God's heart are one and the same. That's what God's answer is. It's overwhelming every time I think about it. It just overwhelms me. The woman said, 
I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What a surprise. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman because you weren't supposed to do that in polite company. Men and women talking together in public was not allowed, was not culturally acceptable. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Because they knew if they asked a question, he was going to tell a parable or they, they were just, you know, they didn't want to do that right then. They just went and got food and now they wanted to come back and eat something then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And probably some people thought, everything? Everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Okay? Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. They just went to buy food. They came back, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? But here it comes, verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's the invisible food. My food is to do God's will and to finish the work of God to finish the work that that God sent him to do by going to the cross for us and to finish the ongoing work of God that brings us right down to where we are today right here right now my food said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work and this is invisible food then verse 35 don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Henry Nouwen wrote, what does it mean to live a life in the spirit of Jesus Christ? The question about the spiritual life is a very challenging question. It touches the core of life. It forces you to take nothing for granted. Jesus was all about invisible food. He always knew where he was going and what he was doing. And he is always reaching out for you and me to get us involved in this work of invisible food. I think there are at least four aspects of invisible food that we need to look at this morning. Let's look at them together. Number one, what drives Jesus is bringing people into his kingdom. That's like his food. What drives Jesus is bringing his people into his kingdom. That's why verse 35 is right there. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. People are ready to come. What are you doing about it? We have five abiding values as a church. We call these our core values. Let me go through them quickly, and then we're going to go back and focus on number one. First, raising the level of risk when it comes to reaching people for Christ. Two, connecting people to authentic Christian community where they can grow. We want to provide places where you can connect with each other and then grow in faith and life. Three, three unleashing compassion 
into our broken world. Four, encouraging people to own and live their spiritual journey with integrity. You have to own it for yourself. You have to live it out for yourself. And fifth, generosity in our stewardship of ministry and mission. What drives Jesus is bringing people into his kingdom. How do we, how do you, how do we together raise the level of risk when it comes to reaching people for Christ? Simple explanation this morning is right here. This is a way of raising the risk. We, we know Mike Lacona. We, I called him on the phone. I said, Mike, can you come? Can you do this? He said, yes, I would love to come back to Virginia Beach and do that with you. We provide a great opportunity for you to be here and for you to invite people who have questions about God, who haven't thought about God in a long time, who somehow maybe were in church but haven't been in church in a long time. Raising the risk means you have to invite them. The truth is that studies show that People come to Christ because they are invited by someone they know. You take all of the, the crusades and everything and put them up against people's personal invitations and people's pers your personal invitations win all the time. I know a person who watched Billy Graham on TV and, and they came to Christ by watching Billy Graham on TV. But that is very rare. More people came to Christ because they were invited to the Billy Graham crusade by somebody who knew them. So think about Easter as it comes up. What would it take to raise the risk for you to invite someone to be here for one of our three Easter services? What would it take to raise that risk for you? It's, it's just an ask. It's just an invitation. We're going to have great invitation cards next week. All you have to do is you know, at Willow Creek, they used to have this thing they called walk, they called it walk across the room. It was seeing somebody and walking across the room to engage them. All you have to do is walk across the office. All you have to do is walk across the street. All you have to do is, is walk across the parking lot. You can just walk across just about anything and invite somebody. What would it take if you raised the level of risk when it comes to reaching people for Christ? Remembering that the food that Jesus loved to eat was bringing people into his kingdom. Second, what drives Jesus is meeting you where you are and making you better. This is like his food. John Ortberg used to call this being you-ier, being you-ier, you getting you-ier. Matthew 16 tells this story. Who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised 
to life. Imagine hearing this story. Imagine hearing it from Jesus himself. It was, it was overwhelming. They were trying to figure it all out. Peter took him aside. Peter hears this, and he, he goes, this, this ain't going to happen. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen here. What's Peter doing? He's powering up. He's going, the way I think about it is if somebody tries to get you, I'm going to take them down. I'm going to protect you. You don't have to worry. I'm going to make sure everything's okay. We're going to live together for a long, long time. What does Jesus say? Here it comes. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus dials it in. You got two kinds of concerns. You have either concerns of God and how God does things and how God's got a plan that's way outside of your comfort zone, way beyond your logic zone, or you have human concerns. Human concerns are by nature egocentric and self-protective. Human concerns are relationally superficial. Human concerns are white-knuckled, gripped. They are, you know, you just hold on and hold on. You don't want to give anything up because it's yours. Human concerns are excuse-laden. Human concerns are passive-aggressive. Human concerns are strategic for the wrong reasons. Strategic, but for the wrong reasons. I went to the Norfolk Forum on Tuesday, and I heard General Stanley McChrystal. What an amazing military man, and what a blessing it was for me to hear him speak. He's written a book called Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World. And basically what he was saying was when he was uh, over all the forces in Afghanistan, uh, all the international forces and the U.S. forces, and they were fighting al-Qaeda, they started out thinking like Western military strategic people should think. They had a top to bottom structure and they had maps all over the place and they tried to think, you know, in, in the West Point way and in the Naval Academy way and in all the ways that, that they're trained to think, you know, where are we going to you know, have airstrikes and, and where are we going to move here around this, this mountain range and where, there's a valley over here. How are we going to pull this all together? And what happened was they kept going nowhere fast. They weren't putting a dent in it. And so finally, they had to realize that all of our strategic thinking had to go out the window. We had to think in a whole different way. Logic was losing this war. What could turn this around so that we, could, so that we can win this war? And he wrote things like this in his book. Our task force's rigid top-to-bottom structure was a product of military history and military culture. Top to bottom. This is how we do things logically and strategically. The temptation to lead as a chess master, controlling each move of the organization, must give way to an approach as a gardener. And as soon as I read that, my mind goes immediately to John chapter 15, where Jesus describes God the Father as, as a gardener. A gardening approach to leadership is anything but passive. So it's not gardening you know, in the gentle countryside, it's like figuring out what it's going to take to make things grow better, to make things just develop to their fullest potential. The temptation to lead as a chess master had to end. The gardening approach had to come in. In place of maps, whiteboards began to appear in our headquarters. Soon they were everywhere. Standing around them, we thought out loud, diagramming what we knew, what we suspected, and what we did not know. So no more maps. 
whiteboards. Everybody, write things down. Write what you know. Write what you think you, you might know is true. And then write what you don't know. We'll look at that. We'll synthesize it. We'll try to figure that out. Logic is not working. Something different has to work. And then he said this. If I told you that you weren't going home until we win, what would you do differently? Pretty good quote. Pretty good leadership. See, there's a difference between human concerns and God concerns. There's a difference between logical, strategic, military structure and what it takes to win. Jesus said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. And if you don't, we're not going to get this done. You only have human concerns. That doesn't get us where we're going, Peter. Invisible food to Jesus is knowing the concerns of God and doing them. Knowing the will of God and doing it. Free from ego and free from cheap excuses. And free from misaligned or misguided strategies. You can have all the, the Christian strategies that you want in the world. But if they're not right, you're not going anywhere. What drives Jesus is meeting you where you are and making you better. Here's the application to that. Take the best thing you do because of your giftedness. You're gifted at something. God has given you a gift that you do this really well. You do it without even having to think. It just flows out of you. Take the best thing you do because of your giftedness and then make it better. Get to the growing edge of the kingdom of God in that gift. So to do that, what's your next move? You need to read a different book. You're always reading books, but they're always sort of the same book. Do you need to go to a different kind of a conference? Do you need to take a different kind of class? Do you need to have a different kind of a conversation? Do you need to talk to somebody who can coach you? How is God in that move with you? So whether it's leadership, whether it's teaching, whether it's singing, whether it's missions, whether it's investing in ministry, what drives Jesus is meeting you where you are and making you better. So you decide to take that gift he's given you and figure out what's the next move to make it better. That's why I read leadership books. That's why I go to leadership stuff. It's why I went Tuesday night to this event in Norfolk because I have to get better all the time. Number three, what drives Jesus is resolution of conflict. In Matthew chapter five, we've been here before and you've been here before. Uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to, pe to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka is the equivalent of calling somebody a doofus. Literal Greek translation. Doofus or dunderhead or dunder doofus head. However, it's like really putting somebody down. You fool is our word moron. You want to call somebody dunderhead? You're answerable to the court. You want to call somebody a moron? You'll be in danger of the fire of hell. You think this is kind of important to Jesus? Here's, here's where we're going. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. 
First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And you know what I think? I think sometimes the brother or sister might know that they've got something against you. And sometimes it might be in some sort of unspoken family code or unspoken church culture code or unspoken office code. But what's he saying? You're the one that's got to do the reverse altar move and go. I call it the reverse altar move. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to see you unless you're in right relationship. He sees you all the time. He wants to see you and me make the reverse altar move for the right relationship. He made the ultimate sacrifice. We sang about this earlier today during the worship time. He made the ultimate sacrifice for conflict resolution between God and us and models the value of doing that in our lives with each other. In John 13, just after he finishes with the foot washing time with the disciples, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know what love looks like sometimes? Looks like a reverse altar move. What drives Jesus is resolution of conflict. That's his food. So what's your reverse altar move today? And may I be so bold as to say, don't say you don't have one. Because if you're breathing, you have one. If you're a human being in relationships with lots of people, there's one somewhere. What's your reverse altar move? Finally, what drives Jesus is compassion. His food is caring for the hurting, lonely, sick, brokenhearted. In Matthew 25, there's that famous passage of Jesus you know, dividing the sheep and the goats, and then we get down to the place where it says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What drives Jesus is compassion. In just a few moments, we're going to have a community mission fund because it's the last Sunday of the month. In January and February, we gave away a total of $26,324 because of the community mission fund. We helped, we helped, we helped 135 people. And if you go, what's the average of that? It's an average of $195 to help an individual which is either for food, for some emergency need, for some medical need, or it's for some rent assistance. Um, you help people all the time because the food of Jesus is compassion. This is one of the greatest things that you do. We got a call just the other day. Actually, it's an email from our church in Islamabad, Pakistan. And, and our pastor there, our pastor Latif, said the government has required us now because it's so dangerous to be a Christian church in Islamabad, the government's requiring us to have security cameras, a security network in our building. We can't afford that. 
It costs about $1,000. Can you help us? And so the other day, we sent $1,000 to Islamabad so that our church, Spring Branch Islamabad, can have a security system, you know, because we love them and we care, we care about them. And we do this over and over and over again because it's what Jesus does. It's the, the food of Jesus. Right now, we have a couple of single-parent families right now that really need help. Moms and dads with kids, and they're, they're kind of at the edge, and there's more month left than there is resources for the month. And so we do this, and we have to do it again today to bridge this gap. And, and when Jesus said, you know, if you do it to the least of these brothers and sisters, you, you did it for me, he's saying that the food that he eats is the will of God helping people, bridging the gap where there's a gap. Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Invisible food. What drives Jesus is bringing people into his kingdom. That's his food. What drives Jesus is meeting you where you are and making you better. That's his food. What drives Jesus is resolution of conflict. Where's your reverse altar move today? What drives Jesus is compassion. Compassion. So what food are you eating? I imagine that at the end of this day with this woman at the well that Jesus sat down and he wrote an entry to his diary to his father. Dear father, today you saw me with someone at Jacob's well. I focused on her heart because the world of men and women is on our hearts. Your will is to reach all of them so that they may live with us forever. Your will is to show compassion and grace, teaching them compassion and grace for each other. They do get lost inside of their minds by thinking surviving this world is the predictable end of all their days. But I love to see the light in their eyes when they realize there is another world. I love to see their surprised faces when holy, and holy joy embeds its arrow in their souls. The ones we have chosen wrestle with deep abiding hungers for spiritual connection, yet they don't grasp the food sustaining me. They observe, ponder, and discuss with each other as they juggle with what drives me. Their quizzical expressions make me laugh as a fire dances and we banter dusty events of the day. And each sunrise to sunset, I ready them for imminent journeys of faith and sweat. One of these men, one day these men will dine on the feast of doing your will. When that happens, these moments in Samaria will come back to their minds like warm summer breezes from the sea, reaching out to weary fishermen. Father, our plan of the cross awaits. It is the destiny of a universe needing abundant grace. Your light will shine magnificently in the darkness of this world we made for glory. They will be ready soon. Jesus, dear Heavenly Father, allow us to, to yearn for the food of Jesus. Allow us to, to live out of the strength of what he did and what he taught and how he lived. Allow us to be motivated and, and just pushed down the road of each day by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father.
Allow us to bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.